I Love Mortgage Brokering live episode one. Yeah, actually, I, I'm at the point where I'll get probably eight to 10 leads a month through Instagram uh, or Facebook combined because they're the same brand. They're not always the warmest leads. Some of them are just generic questions or, or maybe people who are, you know, I, I work at a gas station, I want to buy a $3 million mansion. But at the same time, though, the fact that they're thinking of me means that someone is seeing that. So it sort of gives me feedback on which posts are affected. The most inspiring stories from today's most successful mortgage brokers. Join your host, Scott Peckford, on I Love Mortgage Brokering. Hey, Broker Nation, Scott Peckford here. I'm just introducing a new format that we're doing for our show called I Love Mortgage Brokering Live. And so one of the things that we've done over the last three years since we started the show is we did we crowdsourced answers from the mortgage broker community. And it's really been awesome to see how everyone's given back and helping each other. But I thought, you know what, wouldn't it be cool if we could not only crowdsource answers, but crowdsource questions. And so I'm sure there's times you're listening to a show and you think, hey, why doesn't Scott ask this question? Well, the reality is I just didn't think of it. And so we decided that we're going to adjust our format and we're going to make our shows live. And so if you want to uh, be involved in a live recording of our show, you go to islandmortgagebrokering.com slash live and you can find it when our next live taping is going to be. And uh, this particular episode, I had my friend Ben Samut, and we basically talked about how to market to millennials and how, as a mortgage broker, you should, you know, try to build relationships with millennials. What things works, and sort of the myths, um, and we both brought our best three ideas, the best three tips. And so the new format will essentially be. Initially, I'm going to talk to the guests, find a little bit about them. Then we're going to both myself and the guests are going to bring our best ideas around the topic. And then we're going to open it up to the community. And so we had about 20 people attend that live first one that we just posted on Facebook. And they were also bringing in questions and comments. And it was a lot of fun. So you can check those out at ilovemortgageworking.com live. And you can check out this episode with Ben and I. It was the very first one we've ever done. And I'm totally jacked about this format. I feel like it's going to be a a great way uh, to interact with the community as well as to come up with some new ideas and insights that we haven't thought of because the community can, uh, we can do this together. So check it out. Also, please don't forget this episode is sponsored by Pioneer West Acceptance Corp. Pioneer West is a private lender in BC and Alberta. Now, normally when we have a sponsor for the show, it's because we personally use their product or service and I can give it a 100% recommendation. In this case, it's a little different. I personally don't do B deals. So I did some background checking on uh, the crew at Pioneer West and I found people said that they were fast, they underwrote deals if they made sense, and which is exactly what you're looking for at a private lender. Another cool thing about Pioneer West is they're super fast. In most cases, they can give you an answer in under two hours. So if you're a broker looking to do a private loan in BC or Alberta, check out pioneerwest.com and tell them you heard about them at I Love Mortgage Brokering. First of all, thanks for coming on this with me, Ben. Like, I know that Lauren Smith actually initially connected me with you and said, uh, I said great things about you. And I heard great things about you, not just from Lauren, but from other people. And when I saw the picture that she posted of you without the beard, I, if I had it, I would share it. You look like Justin Trudeau. Like, like <laughs> and you kind of had this look of like in your eyes. And I was like, there's Trudeau, man. Like, you know, it was hilarious. It was kind of creepy. I'm not going to lie. But it was also kind of hilarious at the same time. Oh, so, man. <laughs> how did you get into the mortgage business? And what, tell me your story initially. That's what I, I want to I hear that. Uh, yeah, so actually, I got into it through my father. He's been a mortgage broker for about 25 years now, and he was one of the founding partners of Mortgage Architects, actually. So I grew up around it. I was always, you know, in the car listening to speakerphone conversations with clients and, and realtor partners and so on. So I just sort of organically came into it. And I graduated from the University of Ottawa in 2013, and it wasn't really a good job market at the time. And so I actually just started underwriting for my dad just to get by. 
And it turned out that I was a really good fit. Um, I liked it quite a bit. And then I went into getting my license and then I've since gotten my, uh, my broker ticket as well. Okay. So how long did you do the underwriting part? I did it for about two years. And, you know, my, my role had always sort of fluctuated as it typically does with a, a family business. But within the first few months, I was taking on my own clients. I was going through files with them, really familiarizing myself with the process and then just wanting to be as, as independent as possible while still having the tutelage of my dad. And then uh, I think we really finalized my position probably about three, three and a half years ago, where I would take on more of the lead generation as well. Right. Okay, cool. And then, so you had said to me before when we were chatting that your first word was amortization or something. Is that like, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Uh, he's, he's pretty much been doing this since I was uh, a newborn. So I've, I've always grown up around it. I've, I was, you know, the kid on the, the first line trips and, you know, I've, I've seen this industry for quite some time. Right. Right. Okay. So then once you decided to go out and kind of do your own thing, so walk me through what that was like from the great part is you did have a, uh, to learn the under the, the business because often you take the training and you doesn't really prepare you for being, you know, proficient in our business. So you got a couple of years of that, probably handled lots of files. So what was it like to go out and then start to find your own business? So it's, it's sort of interesting. I still work with my father as a team. Um, so I handle uh, all of his referral partners as well as my own. It's, it's interesting focusing all of your efforts almost specifically on lead gen because it allows you to sort of experiment. Uh, it, it changes your time blocking a little bit because you're really at the mercy of all your referral partners. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also made me realize after a little while I was getting a little rusty at underwriting. So, you know, it's, this is almost a definition of if you don't use it, you lose it. So I'm, I'm focusing again this year and, and going into next year on being a bit more rounded. But yeah, it's, it's been really interesting just being on that lead generation side of things. And then, so what is your role right now? So do you just, do you do your files? Like, do you have, what's your setup? Do you have a team? Like, what's your structure like right now? Uh, yeah, so I don't take any deal from breakfast to brunch. Um, I am essentially the initial contact for all of our referral partners. I'm also in charge of new campaigns to, to bring in new clients. And then once a client comes to us, I'm sort of that vetting process to make sure they're not just a tire kicker. I make that initial decision to see what a good plan of action might be for them without knowing all the specifics. And then I bring them into our system. So we've got an underwriter on our staff, uh, as well as a docs administrator. And then my dad and I will work on the file and really decide what the best course of action would be with the client. But then once it kind of gets to that initial credit decision, I'm, I move on and I, I start looking at the next lead. You try to find a new lead. It's similar to Peter Matheny's models a lot like that. He's sort of, he calls himself the point guard and he gets the ball and then he hands it to the team and then they go score the points. So it sounds like you're doing that. And so how long have you been doing it that way? Been about two and a half or three years now that it's, it's been the official role. Okay, so you, you basically take the lead in. And so give me some examples of campaigns you've run because your, your branding is the millennial mortgage broker, right? And so tell me some of the campaigns that you've run. What's one that really surprised you that how well it did? Ironically enough, I found that with my, my marketing towards millennials, there's, there's one part of it that is very well received by millennials, but the largest part of it is actually better received by uh, older generations. So Gen X and baby boomers, they love coming down on millennials, <laughs> frankly. So I find that a lot of humor, which is, oh, there we go, eating our avocado toast or drinking our Starbucks. A lot of that satire and tongue in cheek has been really successful with our referral partners. It's also been really successful with clients that understand that, yes, I'm a millennial and, and yes, I, I sort of get that everything has to be online, but I can also sit down and have a conversation. And I think that in catering to almost that, that desire to, I don't want to say make fun of millennials, but it, it's almost like a misunderstanding. Misunderstanding. Um, I found that's worked quite well. Okay, so um, tell me about a campaign that you've run and uh, so what was something that you've done? Because you said you kind of do the marketing end of your business, right? Yeah. Um, so there were a few videos that I did. I, I find content all over the internet. So it's not necessarily all mine. I just like to share it. 
but I found a few that were making fun specifically of the, you know, the typical basement dweller until mom and dad give them a gift. And so that was really successful with older generations, but in actually trying to get uh, new generations to pay attention, I found that the, the most successful campaigns on social media specifically were things that were politically charged. So, I mean, obviously, if you're looking at the, the liberal housing measures or the new small business taxes, not being afraid to have an opinion on that, I think has really done wonders because people are realizing that, first of all, you're well-educated. Uh, and second of all, you're educated enough to form your own opinion on it. Right. So do you polarize people like you know, unintentionally with, so give me, well, first of all, you could do the shave thing. You can go back to the Trudeau thing and be like, Hey, like, how am I doing with your housing? Right. <laughs> yeah, fun campaign. But so, um, do you, give me an example of something that you did for that was around that topic around the you know, housing affordability and you know, the tax, the reforms that they've been doing. Uh, yeah. So, um, I did, I put a video out last year. It was somewhat similar to a, a Rick Mercer rant and I'm trying to get back into that. I've just got a new production company working on it. And it was just talking about how, I think that liberals are specifically trying to attack the demand side. And if you look, you know, time and time again throughout Canadian housing history, they've always attacked the demand side unsuccessfully. So my main point was that I wanted to show we need to have governance that's focusing on opening up land, making it easier for development, allowing for purpose-built rentals, rather than trying to restrict the buyer that much further. And that video, I think, sort of struck a nerve with everyone from, you know, the lamenting first-time homebuyers that couldn't get into the market anymore to realtors who saw their client base shrink uh, or to parents that just wanted their kid out of their friggin' basement. I think that it was, it was well-rounded enough but still polarizing enough that everyone was, was intrigued, whether they agreed or disagreed. Um, and so did you, uh, where, where can we find this video? How, like, and I, I used to do the rant thing at one time too, real estate rants, and I would walk and talk, and I love them. So you're, you, you do those as well or you do them? I haven't done them in, in several years though. So tell me, what do you, how many of them have you done? Um, so I have two that I've published. I've got about 30 right now in the works that I've, I've got for specific topics and uh, they're all sort of in, in editing right now. But I, I found that it's, it's a lot of fun. You literally just have, you know, some film student just follow you around and you get a, a cool setting. And I live downtown Toronto, so there's more than enough scenery for me. Speak your mind and, you know, talk for half an hour and then they take the best two or three minutes of it. And uh, so what does it typically cost? Somebody's thinking they want to try something like this because if you find a film student, is yeah. it expensive? Um, it, it really depends. I mean, if you're, if you're willing to do a little bit of the work yourself, um, you can do each video for around 100 to $150. But those are the ones that I think are more big shots. So you don't want to do, you know, 30 of those throughout a year. Those are maybe two, three, four that you do throughout the year. And then little ones you can just record on your laptop or if you've got DSLR camera, you can do that. I mean, for for an entire year of video budgeting, you can do it for six or seven hundred dollars. I think if you're creative, right? And uh, oh, that's cool. And then, okay, so you're you're the front, you're the tip of the spear of your business. You go out and you find leads. So how is it for you when people meet you? Because this is a this is a, a real challenge that people have or perceived in their mind is that well, they talk to me, they got it, they want me to do everything. Like I got to take care. I got to take them. You said from breakfast to brunch, or what did you say? What was your phrase? Yeah. Uh, so. Right. So what, explain to me about how you do that handoff so that somebody who's looking at sharing the work, how they can do it and not like get stressed out and, and still get stuff done. Yeah. So I think that, you know, at, at most of the, the issues that people encounter in sales is when they don't set up expectations ahead of time. So my initial conversation always says, you know, I'm not going to be the point man on this. I'm available if you have any questions whatsoever, but if you need immediate answers, I won't automatically know where you are in the process. So I can find that out for you. I'm still very much available, but I want to introduce you to our team as we go through things. And I, I mentioned up front that we've got an underwriter, we've got a doc specialist. I'm not the broker of record that will be working on it. And that way they're familiar with me. So if I ever do end up working on the file, they're comfortable. But if I don't, they know that I'm still available and they know that I, I work on the team. 
So then how do you add value in that initial, like what's the thing that you're doing in order to get them to want to work with you guys and your team? So the leads are coming in probably Facebook and email text, however they show up. And then what does that first conversation look like to get them to go? Yeah, I actually want to go down the rest of this path. I think it, you know, sales are, are probably 50% personality and then 50% perseverance. So if you, um, if you've got something that draws people towards you, whether it's your marketing campaigns or just if you're extremely attractive, I don't know, whatever it may be to initially bring people to you. I find my, my best approach is just being genuine. I'll tell them, you know what, we don't have stripped down rates. We don't have three hour turnaround times. We don't have that automatic process that you see at the bank, but you know, we're good at what we do. We're confident at what we do and we've got a track record that speaks for itself. Then we'd love to work with you. And if not, then, you know, maybe we'll get another opportunity. And I think that modesty sort of works. And you're selling, you also sell your team a bit too. So you're, you're not saying, Hey, I'm the guy with all the answers. You're like, Hey, I've got a fantastic team. We've got a track record. One of the things that I've found is that you have to sell your team, right? Like essentially your team, your, your team sells you, you, Hey, and do you come up with the initial plan? So is your, in, in that call, you're like, Hey, it sounds like we're going to do something like this or what, how far down the process do you go in terms of, you know, do you take their application? Like what, what does that look like? Uh, yeah. So I've run through their initial scenario. So if it's uh, an ETO or if it's a, you know, a, spousal separation, whatever it may be, I take a, a quick sort of understanding of their employment, their credit, their debts, what their motivations are. And then I tell them initially what I think it might look like. And then with that initial prognosis, if you will, I'll send out the application to them and then I'll send my notes to my underwriter. So as soon as that uh, initial application is received, we've already all sort of gotten on to the same page as to what we think might be the best bet. And then once the application comes in, you might see something that you weren't expecting, like a previous bankruptcy or um, you know, there's undisclosed properties or, or something. And then I can still be part of that process in the de decision-making. Um, but I usually just leave it to my underwriter at that point until, you know, something comes up or if the client still prefers to work with me, I'll just get some close notes afterwards and then at least keep myself apprised. Okay. And do you sign, do you meet any of your clients face to face or is it all digital and phone? Uh, yeah, we do everything through phone, fax, and email. We have no problem meeting our clients if we need to, but we find that uh, the majority of them don't really want a mortgage broker in their living room at dinner time. So. Mm -hmm. It's more for okay. clients. And then what about on, so who takes care of the signing? Would that be the underwriter or would that be who, who manages the, the, the signing part of the process? So we also have a document specialist in our uh, office. Uh, her name's Laura Lee and she has the eyes of a hawk. So she ensures that everything is dotted and crossed properly. She'll take care of all of our MPP applications. And then once everything has been decided and finalized with the banks and it just comes forward or it just comes down to signing the commitment, Laura Lee takes over and she will speak with the lawyer. She'll make sure that everything runs smoothly on closing. And then we're just available if anything comes up as a, a hiccup. Right. You know, it's interesting that one of the ways, and I don't know what sort of, uh, you know, volume you guys are handling, but I, I know you guys are, you know, you're very successful at what you do. But one of the things I've noticed is that in order to scale, and Peter does this and sort of a lot of the other, is that you break the process from there's the sales part. So that's the front part. Then there's the processing, which is the middle. And then you got also the kind of the, the back end. And so not unlike what Henry Ford did when he, you know, made the assembly lines to, to make, you know, to create more efficiency. So it's cool that you guys, and, and you, have you always been that way? Like is your guys business or is that something that has evolved over the last couple of years? I think it, we, we sort of expanded as we've grown. I mean, there was never initially a need for an underwriter and there was never a need for a doc specialist or, or anyone to really handle compliance. But, you know, once you realize sort of you've hit your maximum and you need to expand, I know I, one of the biggest things I love about your show is that you ask for a favorite quote. So I actually already prepared my, my okay. What's your quote? Hit me. Um, so it's, it's from my mom and she says that, you know, when you start to feel like there's not enough hours left in the day, start to buy someone else's day. And so that was when we started to realize, you know, you hit your maximum potential with your resources. Let's say it's 40 million, 60, hundred million, and you can't go any further until you segment your process. 
um, that's when it's a proper time to bring on another underwriter, bring on another uh, doc specialist or a sales team. And then you're using someone else's 24 hours to expand the, the business. Right. That's a really, that's an awesome quote. Your mom's a smart woman. Okay. Let's talk about your top three strategies. So what's your, we'll go back and forth. You share one, I share one. And then if anybody has questions that they would like um, me to, to ask, just write them in the chat box and we're, we're totally, you know, that, that's why we're doing this interactive style. So why don't you go first? What's your number one tip for uh, somebody who's saying, Hey, I want to market to millennials. Um, I think that the, the strangest thing about marketing to millennials is that it's, it's almost an enigma for anyone who's not an, a millennial. So I would say that specifically targeting millennials can sometimes be fruitless. It takes a very, very long time to establish a, a brand or a, or a persona with them. I myself am a millennial. I'm, you know, I grew up on Facebook. I got Facebook when I was in grade nine. So I think that a lot of people see a brand page. I got or, internet in grade 12, like grade 11. So I was <laughs> like, and it was dial up and you'd go to these bulletin board forums and download stuff and you'd be like the anarchist cookbook. And I'm like, cool. Anyway, sorry. I'm not a millennial. <laughs> But you know what, though, that's that's what makes the difference is I, I can understand um, networking socially a little bit different than looking at something as just a social network. Mm-hmm. So I think that marketing to millennials isn't so much an actual lead generation or a means of getting um, business amongst millennials. I think that because everyone is marketing to millennials, that if you're not marketing towards them, you almost look obsolete or a little bit behind the eight ball. So it's more of a placeholder or a legitimizer for uh, Gen X and baby boomers. Because if they were to look at you and say, oh, they've got a Facebook page. Oh, they're on Instagram. They must be up to speed on things. Whereas to actually attract the attention of millennials or to specifically you know, garner some success with millennials, you more have to just be yourself, which sounds almost too simple. But I think that people are almost too afraid to be genuine, especially on social media. Mm-hmm. So that's why you have things like polarizing issues like the housing crisis or how you feel about, you know, the Yulin dog meat festival. It, it doesn't matter what you're discussing, but if you've got something on your personal profile rather than just your page that shows how genuine you are, you're going to attract people that want to work with you. Right. So the first thing you'd say is being authentic is key to working with, to have building trust with millennials because they can smell, you know, fake or sales pitch, you know, and I'm categorizing here, but basically it feels like that. they're, they're going to be like, I'm out of here. Like, I'm not interested in this. Would you agree? Since you are a millennial and I'm not, would you agree with that <laughs> statement? Yeah. I mean, you know, there's, there's certain things that, that make sense. I mean, obviously we love our designer coffee brands. We love uh, new technology and the latest iPhones. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, there's 50,000 realtors in Toronto alone. There's, I don't even know how many thousands of mortgage brokers. And so coming down to you, it's not going to be because you had really fancy lettering or a cool logo. It's going to be because they felt that they could get to know you. They felt that they could trust you a little bit better than that other broker. Um, or their branch rep or whomever their parents recommended. Um, and I think that being genuine and having an actual personality is one of the biggest assets when you're trying to garner the business of millennials. Okay. So I'm going to share my you know, tip for millennial marketing. And uh, so I think, um, and you kind of touched on this already, but using video. So I think video is one of the most powerful ways to build connection apart from being face-to-face with someone, which is hard to do. But uh, I think that if you're in the mortgage space and you're, and maybe you're not comfortable with video, you just need to start. Like, were you, Ben, were you comfortable with video when you first started it? No, I was terrified. <laughs> right. And so how long did it take for you to feel like, okay, this, you know, is not, wasn't, didn't suck. I think after making a few that I didn't actually publish on a page, I just published to friends. I got a little bit more comfortable behind the camera and then I got a little bit less awkward and, and realized how not serious it is. I mean, you're not making a professional film. You're, you're literally just giving two minutes of, of you. So right. it can be a conversation. You can trip up, you can stutter. And that's part of organic conversation flow. 
Right. And, they, and people are actually, uh, it appeals more if it's too polished and, you know, then it actually can kind of push people away be like, Hey, it looks too, too professional. Like there's no flaws in it. And I think, uh, so I personally think video is one of the things that we, we need to embrace and I, you've obviously done that. And just from my story, I, when I started the hundred million dollar journey, I did not want to do video. I was like, I hate doing video. I'm like, you would not believe how many times I sat in the studio and they're basically like, do it again, like do it again. And I'm just like, Oh, and you know, like dance, I felt like dance monkey. And I'm like, ding, ding, you know what I'm, and it was so hard. And, but as I've been doing it more and more, it's actually getting a little easier. So it is, I'm not an actor, so it's, it's challenging, but I think that anybody who's in the, in the space, and if you're on social, like use video. And like you said, the, the, for your first tip was be authentic. Well, one way you can be authentic is in a video. Cause you can, I can see you and I can pick up on the fact if you're like swarmy and like, you know, all like, <laughs> Oh, I'm all about the money. Right. Um, or if you seem like a real normal person. So um, that would be my first thing would be video. So what's your second tip for marketing to millennials that you would, that you would uh, say? Uh, I would say don't spread yourself too thin. Um, so again, everyone's trying to get onto the latest social media, have an up-to-date website they want to have or put out or develop an app. But I, I found that, you know, just find one or two platforms that you're really good at and just do them well. So for example, I don't have Twitter. I think Twitter is completely obsolete and useless. I tried connecting with people on it. I just couldn't keep up with it. I couldn't communicate my ideas in 140 characters. Likewise with Snapchat, I would add people on Snapchat and then try to network with them in a more business setting. And I just get drunk bar snaps every Friday. So, you know, you, you find something that really works for you. So what do you, uh, what, where do you, where do you camp out? What are the areas, what are the uh, networks that you find the most useful? I think that Facebook is probably the best because it's the most dynamic. So if you want to just post a photo, you can, if you want to post a video or news links, you can, and it also still allows you to post paragraph on paragraph of analysis if you want. So that one I, I think is probably my favorite. And then next would be Instagram because Instagram makes it a lot easier to get followers. You literally just have to like a bunch of stuff or uh, focus on specific hashtags and really get into that space. But the, the best part of them is they're tied and I love the analytics in the background. So you'll have a post that, you know, you might see that it was engaged a little bit, but you look at the reach of where that was, those networks went and all of a sudden you just hit a hundred thousand people and you don't know how. Right. Um, so to just sort of hone in on what you want to network uh, or what you want to post as content. Okay. I, I, so you give me some, so I'm going to give a couple of shout outs to people here. So uh, smart mortgage said, hey, agreed about Twitter and Snapchat. Twitter seems to me like a platform for, uh, you know, celebrities who basically want to say, Hey, check out what I'm doing. And people follow them because it's kind of interesting. And, and presidents of countries that are going to nuke each other also <laughs> seem to be, it, that is bonkers to me that, you know, the president of two countries could start a nuclear war with 140 characters <laughs> anyway. Yeah. And then uh, the Rob Campbell said, but Facebook is by far the platform to focus on hundred percent agree. So I'm glad that the Rob Campbell agrees with us. Drunk Friday snaps, LOL, hundred percent agree. That <laughs> That's from Lisa. Okay. So uh, talk to me about in Instagram uh, because I just got on it and I have like hardly any followers and I'm, because I'm old and I'm probably like, I, I don't know what I'm doing. So walk me through how can I use Instagram better? It, ironically enough, I actually got uh, business Instagram as a joke. Someone told me that you can't sell mortgages through photos. So I, you know, challenge accepted. And I just started posting generic photos that I thought would represent my immediate post for content. So there's no theme to it. There was no rhyme or reason. There was no, it, a lot of the photos weren't even attractive. It would be like a Simpsons quote. But I found that just having consistency in your posts, having effective hashtags that are very unique to you, and really trying so, to dominate. Okay, what do you, how consistent? So I'm, I'm going to interrupt because that, that's what I do. But how, how often do you post? And then what kind of hashtags are you using? Is it Millennial Mortgage Broker? What's your like hashtag that you have camped out on? Uh, yeah, so I, I use uh, hashtag Millennial Mortgage is, is my favorite. If you look that up, I'm, as far as I know, I'm the only one that uses it. So there's probably 300 posts for me on there. 
But then I try to do hashtags that are very local to my area. And you'll see certain business uh, gurus or social media people will say, you know, get a really popular uh, hashtag or get people to follow you back on this hashtag. But I don't want followers from Georgia. I don't need followers from France. So I'm trying but to it, do something. It builds your ego though. So it makes you feel like, hey, I'm a big deal. Oh, yeah, absolutely. For sure. But I mean, it's, you know, then it, at that point, it's more of a pleasant distraction than an effective tool. So I, I try to focus more on, I'll do hashtag insert city name real estate. So I'll, I'll look at the, the largest real estate boards around me uh, in Ontario and I'll insert all of those hashtags into my, uh, my posts or I'll, I'll have, um, if there's ever anything that's a, a politically charged rant, I'll always do CDN poly uh, for Canadian politics. And right. Try to keep some relevance with that, I think. Okay. Um, I didn't even know what that was. CDN poly. I'm like, dude, you're speaking like, you're like one of these kids talking with languages. I don't understand. Okay. So, so your first tip was be authentic. So you got to be real, be you don't like, and don't overthink like trying to make it so polished because people will just, you'll actually push people away. The second one was don't spread yourself too thin. So you like Instagram and Facebook in terms of just network sets. And tell me, just give me an example of, have you been able to get business from Instagram? Yeah, actually I'm at the point where I'll get probably eight to 10 leads a month through Instagram uh, or Facebook combined because they're the same brand. They're not always the warmest leads. Some of them are just generic questions or, or maybe people who are, you know, I, I work at a gas station. I want to buy a $3 million mansion. But at the same time, though, the fact that they're thinking of me means that someone is seeing that. So it sort of gives me feedback on which posts are effective. Mm-hmm. And it, it has, it, it has started to, to work for me as a lead gen tool. I mean, obviously we still focus most on our referral partners. We still focus heavily on past clients, but if you're just looking for sort of a new frontier, social media is proving to be profitable. Right. That's awesome. Okay. So my second tip, uh, so my first one was video, use it more. And the second one would be, um, if you're going to not meet with your clients, which more and more people are not, I recommend using a platform like this. So this program zoom, you can actually do screen sharing with it. So I got some friends that are using, you know, when they do that initial consult and they try to show them the GDS TDS, they actually do a screen share and show them by logics and say, Hey, Mr. Customer, you know, see, this is what, this is why you can't qualify for more money because look, I put in your income and this is where the ceiling is. And look, if I change your income, you can see how it affects the numbers. And I feel like if you're really open with people, you can build more trust. Right. And so no mm-hmm. different than going to a mechanic and he says, there's something wrong with your car, but he doesn't explain you what, uh, when they open the hood and point it to you, even if you don't fully understand it, I feel like it's a great way to build trust. And so my second tip would be, and this could maybe just not millennials, but generation, anybody that you're dealing with uh, remotely, if you can do at least one video conversation with them or a screen share, I feel like that's a, a level phone is here. And then that goes to another level. What do you, what are your thoughts on that? I think it's a great idea. Um, I mean, you'll still have some clients that are a little shy and, you know, maybe don't want to show a messy bedroom, you know, just having that offering. And that's the thing too. This might even move into a third point, but you don't have to use all of the resources but the fact that you have those resources gives you a little bit of credibility and that helps with clients as well. Right. Yeah. They're like, Hey, you, you can give them different ways to interact with you. Okay. What's your third tip that you would recommend for people that are uh, wanting to market to millennials? I, I think that I would say this one, I actually was surprised by and learned the hard way. We don't really belong to the stereotype. So for example, I was trying to experiment a little bit with what's called Facebook dark posting. Have you ever heard of that? No. Dark posting? <laughs> Dark posting. So when you post on Facebook, it posts directly to your audience, but you can also do what's called dark posting, which means your audience doesn't see it. It's just an advertisement that shows up elsewhere on the internet or mostly on Facebook um, to a targeted audience. So it's more meant to find people that aren't in your network and try to attract them to your network. And that's on your, is that on your page or your personal? It must be on your page. uh, That's on my page. Yeah. So you'll see, for example, if you don't like WestJet, uh, on Facebook, you'll still see a WestJet advertisement with the option to like it. So that's dark posting. And so I try to dark posting 
uh, campaign where I was going to give out Starbucks. Uh, I was going to um, give advice to first-time home buyers, you know, have that talk, how to discuss things with mom and dad. And I realized that nobody was paying attention to it whatsoever. Uh, I couldn't use any of the contacts that I got from it. It, it just being a completely obsolete campaign. Okay, so you tried dark posting, and okay, so I'm I must be just stunned, or maybe it's because I'm old. Just to help me understand, maybe dumb it down for me. Like talk to me like I'm, you know, in grade seven. Explain to me what dark posting is, so I actually can wrap my head around it. Yeah, so it was just what I did was I targeted anyone that I thought might like my page. So I looked for uh, men and women between the ages of about twenty to thirty-five uh, that lived anywhere in southern Ontario, and I said, hey, you don't like my page yet, but you might. Um, so here's a campaign to get your attention. And my campaign was, uh, give me your input. What would you like to discuss? Let's get some new topics that you might want to hear from me about. Um, and in exchange, I can give you a Starbucks gift. I'll have a draw for other millennial stereotypes. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, gluten-free. And- Hashtag gluten-free. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but it turned out that it wasn't well received and, and no one really ended up responding to it. I got a few people that just wanted the Starbucks card and you know, they didn't have any input. They didn't talk to me. So I think that the biggest lesson I learned from that was that millennials don't respond to millennial stereotypes. If that makes sense. It's, it's almost, it's almost like a mousetrap being put out there that didn't really trap what I wanted to. Right. Okay. So you tried it, but that didn't work. So that's not something, and I'd never even heard of it before. So, you know, thank you for educating me on dark posts. And, <laughs> and, and if I ever ask you to like dumb it down to like, I'm in grade seven, then that's just cause that's just how I work. I'm going to, if anybody has any questions, like if you, anything you want to ask or any comments, whatever, throw them in the chat box. Cause this, we want to make this interactive. Brad Lockie is like Gary V's all about Facebook posts. Um, he's been talking about it a lot lately. So do you, have you followed Gary Vaynerchuk at all? Oh yeah. Yeah. I love Gary and um, so he talks about, obviously he talks about, do you know what he's saying, what Brad is talking about with this dark posting that Gary Vaynerchuk's all over? Yeah, well, I, I'm not sure I've seen Gary V's specific thing on dark posting on Facebook, but I have seen how he, he discusses social media as a means to individually interact with people. There was a really good video that he put out that was talking about restaurant owners and saying how instead of giving a generic, you know, here's 10% off your next visit with us, uh, here's a free dessert with your next meal, as almost like a blast to instead use social media to find people that would be more targeted towards you. So you could profile someone based on age, location, uh, gender, and then go into their inbox and just say, hey, you look like the exact person I'm looking for. Here's a promotion specific to you. So that way I'm not having to drop my pants for my entire client base. Right, yeah, yeah. That's what, like Groupon does that. Groupon is like, and the, the interesting thing about Groupon when they first came, everybody thought it was a brilliant idea, but most of the businesses, it wasn't a great deal for them because they get discounts. People just buy the Groupon and don't come back, right? The idea with Groupon was that they would get new customers, but people would use the coupons and then just like locusts, just like eat everything and then leave, right? And so, um, so you're saying that with this, that you can be geo-target customers. So through, is that through Messenger that you would message them directly or how would that look? Well, I haven't actually tried that specific campaign, but I would imagine, yeah, you just, you go to their profile and message them directly to, to put it into context for the mortgage side. I remember we had a campaign where uh, we did an advertisement in the local newspaper that we would cover $750 of closing costs. And it was for anyone refinancing or purchasing in the immediate area. But as soon as word got out to every client we've ever had, it became a little ugly. And I mean, you know, at the end of the day, we're willing to eat that cost because it does mean a new deal through the door. If you were able to somehow, not necessarily mask it, you're not playing cloak and dagger, but if you were able to specifically target to who you wanted to and keep it exclusive to that targeted person, having that ability to dark post on Facebook or to post directly in a, they call it sliding in DMs uh, on Instagram, then that would allow for a little bit more efficiency, I think. 
Right. Okay. That's cool. That's all. Okay. So my last tip for uh, marketing to millennials, you got to manage your social reputation. So I think Google reviews, Facebook reviews, and I see some people that are very successful mortgage brokers that don't have a really strong, you know, website, but they have good reviews. And so the reality is that most of us, I don't think it's just millennials. I think people in general, we think, you know, you, if we don't care, I always use this example. We don't care what Canon says about their cameras because Canon's trying to sell me a camera. What I care about is, you know, a plumber in Vermont who uses the camera and says things. And I'm like, so when I go to a website, I typically, or Amazon, I go right to the reviews. You know, I'm going to look at what someone else says. And so I think one of the things that we have to do a better job of is managing an online reputation, you know, making sure that when we have happy customers that we say, hey, can, would you mind, you know, going and um, leaving some you know, uh, social proof for me? Or, and so what do you do in that regard in terms of, you know, managing your social reputation? Yeah, you actually bring up a really good point. I, frankly, I haven't done enough with my reviews. I really do want to, and I think that that's a bigger goal for me for 2018, but it's worth pointing out the difference between reviews and testimonials. You have testimonials on your website. If you've got plenty of great reviews from people and you quote them and you post them, I think that a lot of people would not necessarily read right through it, but they can still see that, you know, you're not going to post some guy from this city said that I was a shitty mortgage broker. Right. So it's a little bit more disingenuine because you have to only post the good stuff. Whereas reviews allow for people to post negativity and you can sort of only moderate it so much. Yeah, yeah, I think, think third party is best, like, you know, in terms of for people to believe it, because you can go on Fiverr and I can get somebody to re- do a video testimonial of me saying Scott's amazing. And, yeah. you know, so like you can fake all those things, but it's really hard to fake Google and Yelp and Facebook. Like you can maybe a few, but you couldn't get when you get into the, you know, dozens of reviews, it gets hard to fake that many. Absolutely. And then it becomes almost an aggregate rating, which helps with your, your SEO on, on Facebook as well. Mm-hmm. Anybody else have any questions? So is there anything else that I should have asked you? You think you like when, cause when, this again, this is a different format and I just, I wanted to try something different, but anything you think I should have asked you that would be useful for our audience? Honestly, I was expecting a DeLorean question. Okay. Uh, so there you go. Let's, let's do the DeLorean. So if I could put you back in the, in the DeLorean car, send you back to five years ago and you are like, Hey Ben, listen to me, buddy. This is the three things you got to do. What three things would you do to make yourself, your business bigger and better today? Uh, I think number one, so when I first started in the industry, five-year fix was around 3.49%. So I think I would have basked in that rate environment and really realized how great of a decreased market, or excuse me, uh, a decreased rate environment we've had lately. So that I wouldn't have necessarily taken that for granted because I think some people got a little naive and a little comfortable over the last few years. That would have been a big one. Granted, I only do have a five-year look back. And another one I think would be to keep receipts <laughs> being self-employed you realize that you know there's receipts in your nightstand drawer there's receipts in your coat pockets and you got to be a little bit more organized than just keeping your credit card statements right so that you, that's very practical so you got you got the you know enjoy the fact that the rate this is a low rate environment or be aware of it and the second is receipts anything else i would focus more on not being afraid to sort of say no to people and you know that's not necessarily you know going up the ranks or or saying no to very very good referral sources. But when I first started, I was very hungry, as everybody is. And you know anyone with a real estate license could take half an hour to an hour of my time, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But I've really started to realize over the years that there's a lot of time drainers out there, and it's not intentional. But you have to be a little bit better at recognizing so that way you keep your core group of people, you keep that that network that is you know I, I think your you, well your network is your net worth, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I'd focus a little bit better on maintaining the good ones and weeding out the bad ones a little quicker. Right. Yeah. That's one of the things I tell people if they're new is you say yes to everything, like every file, every deal, because you're going to learn something. And then as you start to mature in your business, you start to learn how to be selective and say no. And you know, when I started, I did every kind of deal, B deals, like anything that came across my desk, 
as my business matured, I was like, no, I'm not doing that. I'm going to refer that out. I'm not going to do it. And, um, because you become more efficient at the, you know, the type of business you want to do and you're, you, yeah. can, you can get, become more efficient. So is there any other advice that you give to somebody that's like, you know, maybe the new people starting out? Yeah, I think for new people that are just getting into the industry, choosing the brokers that you stand with is, is pretty important. You're going to see, you know, splits are going to be almost the same everywhere you, you go. And technology is going to be very similar almost everywhere you go. Um, same with branding. So I think that the biggest thing that I would focus on when first getting into the industry, and this comes with a huge asterisk because I started with my father. I fully yeah. recognize that. But I think that starting in the industry, you want to align with good people. You want to align with people that not just want to see you grow because it helps them their bottom line, but want to see you grow because they want to see you grow. And I think that, you know, having a bit of a judge of character when you first come in is difficult, but it's worth taking the time to weigh out your options. Right. No, that's good. Okay. There's a couple more of the comments that I want to read out. And um, so Brad Lockie, uh, once you market effectively to the millennial crowd, I probably should read this before I read it out to everybody because who knows what Brad put in there, right? It could be like, oh my gosh, I, so, but I'm just going to go. I'm not even going to bother with it. Once you market effectively to the millennial crowd, you actively seek out business from their parents, kind of the reverse by, to the norm. Parents refer mortgage brokers to child. Now child refers mortgage broker to parents. Are you seeing this trend? So that's a great question for you. So have you been able to effectively turn some of those younger clients referring you to their parents? Yeah, uh, I think one of the biggest uh, obstacles that you find when you're dealing with millennials is we don't have any credibility because we're the, the baby generation, right? So if you have some 28-year-old who's buying for the first time and mom and dad have a 30-year relationship with someone at RBC, it's difficult to prove your credibility. Um, but I try to nip that in the bud automatically by including them in a conference call or uh, reaching out to them with some print material right away. And then I find, like I was saying earlier, having my social media presence that I do it's not so much just to attract millennials, it's to legitimize and validate myself to older generations. Mm -hmm. So the fact that I have an opinion and the fact that I you know, was just at the mortgage conference hanging around with Stephen Harper and other large brokers and presidents of banks, that has allowed me to, to have that credibility with parents. Um, but then going back to my process, when I first have that initial conversation and I start to bring them into our underwriter, my part of my job, part of our underwriter's job and so on, every step of the process is to say, okay, you're happy with us so far. Do you know anyone that would need our services? And so we try to either ask up the line in their family or if they have any friends or family buying. I, I think that it's, you know, once you've convinced the millennial, we're pretty hard headed, but you also have to give them some credibility so that their parents know they made a good decision. Right, right. Yeah. And I found that same with me when I would have clients or I'd, I'd be working with a younger client and the parents are like, I'm going to come in and see you. And they'd sit there with their arms crossed and they're like, okay, so <laughs> yeah, yeah sit, lean back. And then I would do my little thing and I'd educate them. And then they'd lean for the time, mo nine times out of 10, they'd lean forward and be like, you know what? You're going to do my mortgage. And so, and I'm like, boom. But I knew that if I, you can't get them in the conversation, they, they can derail your deal. Like you, like you said, you got to get them on a conference call. If there's other decision makers in this process, that you have to include them so that they feel validated and heard. And if you don't, then you're just, you're going to get the, la the 11th hour, they're going to get yanked to their banker because they're going to be like, my banker wouldn't do that to you. They wouldn't ask for this extra document. Let's go to my bank. And you're like, crap, if I would have had a conversation. So good on you for, um, for doing that. And so last quite last comment anyway, from smart mortgage, I don't know who you are smart mortgage. Cause it's not your real name, I would assume. Uh, but what an amazing insight. So many items discussed that we're all thinking about daily. Thank you. And thank you, Ben. I really appreciate it, man, that you were willing to, try this new format with me. It's a little different. It's more, it's kind of discussive. I want to include the audience. And so this is a first time. And so, you know, um, we'll see how it goes. If anybody has any suggestions, feedback on what we can, how we can do this better, like message me. I'm, I'm totally open to, to hearing what people have to say. Cause the whole point is, is can, don't reinvent the wheel. Let's find smart people that are doing good things, smart things. And then let's copy, you know, not illegally copy, but like <laughs> it, let's do our own version of it. And so dude, I really appreciate it.